This show was first broadcast on Free FM, Hamilton, New Zealand's community access media organisation. For more information on our lineup of shows and the role we play in the media, visit freefm.org.nz. mountain called Peak 15. Nothing was known about it. But in 1852, the surveyors found it was the highest in the world, and they named it Everest.
ora e homa, now my hearty mai, ko Hannah Toko Wingua, and you're listening to That's the Ticket, your local art show exploring cool creative happenings in Kirikiriroa and sometimes beyond. Now, I like to think of every episode as an expedition uh, into our creative sphere, and this week I'm pleased to announce in peak pun fashion that we're taking the show to new heights with a creative summit of sorts. Um, I'd like to welcome writer and director of new play, The Sherpa and the Beekeeper, Summit on Everest, Matt Cambick to the show. Kia ora, Matt. Hello, Hannah. It's great to be here and thanks for inviting us. It's wonderful. Yeah, we'll hey, try um, to provide a peak performance for you. Yeah. Did, did you enjoy the puns? I, I put a few in there. They were pretty overwhelming, um, just getting up off the floor, but I'm going to try to go forward anyway. Oh, Matt, you're too good. Um, I can't say I've had that reaction to Machisi Pan <laughs> before, so this is a good start. But um, thank you for joining me today. Great to have you here just because this show, I feel like it's been in the works for a while and I feel it's going to be one of those plays that a lot of people are going to, I don't know if relate's the right word, but I, I feel like it's going to mean a lot to a lot of people in our community because it's such a kind of integral part of New Zealand history that I feel like there's going to be a lot of people wanting to see this. Yeah, I, I, I hopefully that will happen. I think what we've tried to do is, um, well, the play is in three acts and the first act is an attempt to recreate summit day with the mountain the climbers in authentic climbing gear as far as we could get it uh the wind the noise the flags so you know we want people to enjoy the idea that there they are sitting in seats that are right on mount everest in 1953 may 29th at 11 30 a.m when tenzing and hillary got to the summit of the mountain so that'll be beautiful um and then continuing from there we explore you know, how they personally had to deal with this sudden crush of fame in a kind of a fictional future in the second two acts. But yeah, there's a lot of, there's a lot of material, both historical and personal and cultural to, to mine. And we've hopefully done that in a respectful way. On that note, like, it's really cool that you guys are kind of taking this story further. You say that it's like a fictional second and third act because everyone kind of knows the story of Tenzing and Hillary conquering Everest, but no one ever really kind of looks beyond that. That's where the story ends for the main public, even though the impact that that event had on uh, New Zealand, uh, the Nepalese community and so on gets so little kind of airtime and like you talk about how the play is exploring Tenzing and Hillary and the fame that they got from you know climbing Everest and that's something that's never really explored and so I'm really interested uh to see where you take that because it, it, it's honestly something I never thought about ever yeah. yeah it's fascinating because when they were climbing together on the mountain during the expedition I mean they knew each other they became friends, but they weren't close friends. Like, for instance, Hillary had a companion from New Zealand there named George Lowe, who was his good buddy. I think he would have loved to have reached the summer with George Lowe. But he knew Tenzing was a great climber and a Sherpa and could go all the way. 
So they joined up, they reached the summit, having no idea that that moment shared, that moment in history, in mountaineering history and world history, when they came down off the mountain, they were connected, permanently connected as a duo, but really culturally from totally different places. Plus there was this British umbrella over the whole expedition, you know, John Hunt, the Queen's coronation, you know, Britain, every country tried to mount uh, an expedition in those years to be the first. So it's ironic that a, a Nepalese and a colonial New Zealander got there in this British expedition. So we explore that. But yeah, there's, there's things just like, um, a lot of people may not know this, but right after they got off the mountain, they came down through Nepal and India, and there was these huge crowds lotting Tenzing for reaching the summit first. And they even had banners painted, banners painted of uh, Tenzing on the top, dragging Hillary up like an almost mm. comatose Hillary up. And Hillary and, and George and John were watching John Hunt, who led the expedition for Britain, were, were watching all this as they were paraded in this cart. So picture this cart with Tenzing up at the top, you know, the crowds cheering and roaring and down in this kind of little lower part of the same cart or Hillary and I think it was either Hunt or George Lowe getting flowers thrown on them while everyone's cheering Tenzing. So that was the start of a certain kind of tension created from what the world thought of this event that Hillary and Tenzing never thought of and never thought they'd have to deal with. And that was just the beginning of a cascade, including many other things that occurred to them after the climb. That's just one example. With this play, where did it all kind of start? Like, how did, what made you decide you wanted to go on this um, expedition, for want of a better term, uh, to, to, you know, create the Sherpa and the beekeeper? Yeah, that's a fair question. Um, I've always had an interest in mountaineering. I think a lot of people have an interest in Mount Everest. I wrote a novel, um, like a Michael Crichton type science fiction adventure called Everest Rising, which was published in 2017 and won the fiction award at the New Zealand Film and Book Festival that year. Um, So I've had a natural kind of attraction to that mountain and that story. Plus, I was born in 1953, which was the year they summited. But part of me, believe it or not, was just wanting to see the summit built and the two iconic figures on it. Um, it could have almost have been a museum thing, like a diorama that Weta would create or something. But then I thought, oh my goodness, there's a, a story here that a lot of people don't know, as you were alluding to earlier. And so the summit day is a, a, a wonderful thing to realize theatrically. And what comes after is just as potent in many ways, just people don't know it. So I guess the answer to your question, it was a combination of a lot of factors that came together. And luckily, Sarah Johnson from the Raglan Writers Collective Inspiller said, Boil Up is is looking for play ideas. Why don't you throw your idea at them, which I had already thought up with the Inspillers and mentioned to them. And and I entered it in it. And that was the start of the theatrical journey. Yes, and I do want to touch on um, Boil Up soon. But just I, I figure we should get some key information uh, be- before we get uh, deep diving more into the origin story. But uh, the Sherpa and the Beekeeper, Summit on Everest, is uh, premiering at the Meteor Theatre 
uh, May 25th to 29th with 7.30 p.m. shows. And you guys do have a special performance on Summit Day, don't you, the 29th? Yeah, 2, two o'clock, um, 69 years ago at 11.30, mm. uh, the two gentlemen were reaching the summit of Mount Everest. So it's, it's kind of a cool thing and an, a, a way to, again, honor their accomplishment by holding a performance uh, on the day of their climb, May 29th, yeah. It's, it's very fitting. I feel like, I mean, I feel like every performance is going to be special, especially when you, before we started this interview, Matt was um, giving me some insight into the set and into the mountain, and you were just talking about it now. Um, every, I feel like every performance is going to be special because it's not every day um, you get to see the top of Mount Everest. <laughs> But I'm, I'm sure the, the energy in there is going to be electric on the 29th. Um, yeah. And potentially p- there'll be people in the audience who won't realise that it's the day until, like, I assume it, it's it's referenced in the play what day it is when they reach the top, right? Yeah, well, it's on the, most of the programme. I don't know that it's refer- referenced in the play, but um, just to qualify it a little further, we're keeping the meteor theater unheated for the first act. Now that doesn't mean it's going to be air conditioned chilled. It just means the heat won't be on. Most people will be coming in from the outdoors. So they'll have the coats, but we're trying to recreate as, as best as possible, you know, that moment and that time. And yeah, imagining it on the same day is, is another way to, again, honor the characters and the teams that supported them. Um, back then because uh, they will admit the beautiful thing about what, what writing this was I knew Kenzing and Hillary were both guys that I would really admire for their down to earthedness and so it was that made it easier to write in the sense that I knew I could always fall back on the idea that they were good hearted people dealing with all these things that were thrown at them but but the play, as hopefully people will see, you know, they have that touchstone to that humanity that they never lose. I mean, they argue, they conflict, they talk about what's going on in the world, like the problems with the Everest getting junked up, mm. you know, with all the climbers leaving oxygen tanks and sh- shredded tents. You may have seen the photo of the climbers lined up going to the summit a few years ago. It looked ridiculous. Yep. And those guys opened the gate for that in a way. So we try to explore all that. But getting back to that date, yeah, I think the May 29th uh, showing will will be very special. Definitely. And uh, if you're listening right now and are near an uh, internet-connected device, I highly recommend heading over to themeteor.co.nz, booking your tickets. They're only uh, $25 for adults and $15 student concession. Um, I yeah, book an advance team. I say it every week, but I'm gonna say it now. And uh, I'm gonna break for a quick song and uh, then continue having a corridor with the lovely Mac because I feel like we've got a lot to talk about. And uh, I'm gonna break with a. I was looking at um, music from like 1953 and music that kind of talks about climbing and mountains and stuff. And uh, cause oh. I always try to go on theme. And so I've got a song. It's not from 1953. I think it's 1957. Please don't fact check me uh, listeners, but uh, it's called I'm walking behind you 
by Eddie Fisher. So we'll be back, team. I'm walking behind you on your wedding day, and I'll hear you promise to love and obey, though you may forget. should go I'm Walking Behind You by Eddie Fisher. Uh, Banger of a track. Not my kind of usual listening material, but happy to have it on the show. Uh, You're listening to That's the Ticket with Hannah Mooney and today's special guest, Matt Cambick. Uh, We've been kind of talking about the journey that is uh, the Sherpa and the Beekeeper, which is uh, premiering at the Meteor very soon. And it all kind of started with Boil Up. Kind of in a way, right, Matt? Yeah, um, I had the idea for the play gestating a bit, and because I'm in this group of cool writers in Raglan, I kind of kicked it around with them a little bit. Um, but then Sarah Johnson again mentioning her; she's a writer, uh, mostly children's books, very very popular children's books. 
um, in Raglan, she just sent me an email, said the boil up in at the media theater is soliciting for play ideas from, I guess, a new set of playwrights, possibly in Hamilton or the Waikato. So I entered that contest and I got that lovely email that said, you've been selected as one of 10 to join this um, activity. And uh, we were, we went into three, two intensive weekend workshops. And there I was from a play idea to suddenly seeing actors, professional actors from Auckland saying the lines I had written in the black box at the meteor. I was like, both in shock and total joy, <laughs> you know, whether it never went anywhere wasn't even the issue then. I was just, just drinking in the theatrical atmosphere, the other people like Deborah Nuds, who, who ran the, the thing with Kate Hanara. Did I get their names right, Hannah? I believe you, I believe you did. Yeah, uh, yeah Deb and Kate, the OGs. Yeah, I mean, imagine like 10 parties of people and advisors and actor helpers all crisscrossing through those hallways wildly talking about their plays and one group had a musical so they had you know actors and singers running back and forth it was just a, a cool atmosphere creatively overall but of course we got our moments and we learned um possible steps to take the play forward i learned tons of things very rapidly um john t hendry from bats in Wellington and Anders, tell me his last name so I don't screw up. Anders Fulsti. Yeah, uh, a really cool guy from Auckland with a great sense of humor um, and other advisors, and I'll, I'm sure I'll forget all their names, just, you know, came in and they would, they would send zingers at you. They didn't just say, oh, you're wonderful. What a great idea. You're going to go far. And they'd say, this, this isn't working or that's good or you might want to try that. And then we got to do our chunks of play in front of the other um, participants in the black box, which was even, again, I was just beside myself with how wonderful the experience was. So I'm grateful. Uh, I think it worked very well. I hope they do it again for some other people. You know, the other plays that were there were very exciting to see them again being developed. Connor Maxwell's play and Elsie and the play by... Uh, I think it's James Smith about the space guy. I love the space, space stuff. So there we were, yeah, just enjoying that rich beginning of a play. I'm not going to say it's better than the Polish Project, but it's equally fascinating to study both at that level and to know where it's possibly going. Um, yeah, but the boil, the, the, the meteor was a beehive of creative activity on both those weekends. And thanks goes out to the many people who supported that. Benny and Guy also, and you. Oh, oh <laughs> yeah. I mean, back in the day. Um, but no, I I feel like I've said this with, I've had a few kind of boil of the boil up projects on That's the Ticket. And every time we we kind of, we have this chat, we talk about, you know, where it started and how you guys have kind of come first circle. And it's, it's so great to see, um, mm. and, you know, I was there uh, for one of those weekends uh, where, as you say, actual actors saying your actual words on stage. And um, I can agree. It's such a kind of beautiful moment um, for mm. the first time to see your, the things in your head outside of your head. Um, 
I, I gotta yeah. tell you, it's just astonishing. Yeah. I, I do want to, now I want to ask you some more questions about you because uh, you've kind of alluded to how you're quite a successful writer, Matt, but is this your first time directing? Well, I directed a low budget uh, kind of a home movie gone awry, a science fiction movie back in the late nineties, mostly with family and friends. And it weirdly got onto Netflix's uh, rental packages when they were doing you know, like four movies by oddball directors from nowhere when you had to get the DVD in the mail in a package. Yeah. This is a great story. I tell, I suddenly discovered a review of my movie. I didn't even know it had gotten on this rental deal because I had sent it to a B movie producer in New York and it got lost in the the abyss of time. I never got any money. But the first review said, you know, the worst movies in the world, these are worse than that. You know, for for the one that I was packaged with, and it was a fair assessment because it was a you know I had used Final Final Cut Pro back when I you know four gigabytes of data cost a thousand dollars for the storage, and it was mostly my relatives, but I put my heart and soul into it, and it was a feature length. So honestly, it was okay with me. I got you know differing feedback, and I had a great premiere in Pittsburgh, but you know you learn a lot. Yeah, but I've also been the creative director and done produced university level um, videos and for Duquesne University, Carnegie Mellon University. I've done work for Disney, um, artwork storyboarding for some of Disney Interactive's games. And I'm also vice chair of a nonprofit in the U.S., which is producing a walkable relief map of the United States that's 100 yards long with the relief, the bumps. So people can explore the whole country. And then we project rivers and geology and history onto the map. Yeah, so I'm a busy guy creatively. And it wasn't until I retired that I really got to get into all this. But directing experience, no, not a whole lot. But I knew what I wanted. And now Martin Booker, who is our advisor and mentor, has been there to make sure I don't screw up too badly. The actors, uh, Jerrica Nicodemus and Cameron Smith, are both pros from up north of this country and yeah it's just all come together I, I because I've been so long in creative industries that movie experience aside <laughs> I, I you know I fell into that role pretty well I felt you know let the actors do their work steer the ship a little and being the writer we were able to work on dialogue occasionally that didn't fit or didn't feel right so um yeah, they'll have to tell you their experience, but as far as I know, it was A-OK. I mean, that's a pretty good review. And can we just circle back to how low-key you are about all the kind of incredible things you've done? Like, I've met you before, but I had no idea about the background that you just gave me. You're very chill about it, Matt. <laughs> well, look, when you're as, as mature as I am age-wise you're bound to have gone through a few, few things, you know, ups and downs. Um, I've, I've had great enjoyment working in various roles in the creative things that I've done. And there's a broad swath of them right now. The beauty of theater is that you bring, it's like filmmaking, you bring writing, um, the logistics of creating sets, the musical thing, um, the promotional stuff, the physicality of being there there's so many things you get to bring at once i mean my brother and i even did a music album which was 
sold in on the radio in Pittsburgh, kind of like James Taylor, Gordon Lightfoot type music, that all original music that we wrote. So I just, I dabble in so many things and I enjoy them all. It's almost like, what do I do with my time? But since I moved to New Zealand and retired from my job as a creative director at Carnegie Mellon University, I get to pick them and mm. work on them. And it's almost crazy. Like right now, I get to work all day long in a place. So if I'm calling up my production manager, managers, Jay and Brooke Baker, who both work, you know, I'm like, let's get this thing moving. Let's get that thing moving. Well, maybe after five when we're done with our day job. No, they've been both great, you know. Mel Martin Booker has been great. Sarah Johnson has been great. But I'm the only one that works, gets to work on this the full day. And I go visit my wife, Allison, and uh, she's been very supportive. Uh, you know, I just have fun in the great opportunity that imagination allows you. And I dive in wholeheartedly. Yeah. I mean, that is the dream. I, you know, that was what I loved about. Um, my time at the Meteor uh, when I worked there is because I just got to work with shows every day. That was my job during the day. And then it was like you just mentioned, I have to wait till after five when I can talk to my production managers and stuff, because for so many people, it's the, you know, extracurricular activity. And so I, I feel like a lot of, um, of our theater listeners will agree. The, the, the dream is just getting to work on theater every, like all day, every day. Yeah, it really is. I mean, I've been talking to a few young people here and there, including an interview I just had with the Nexus newspaper over at the Waikato University. And, you know, the young lady was interested in getting into theater or writing fiction. I said, you're sitting in the catbird seat in a way because you're, you're young and find people that have the same passion. It doesn't matter if they're working in it or not. And sit down and talk about your dream project. And suddenly... You know, you'll be like 29 years old and doing it. Um, yeah, I tell everybody that. Just if there's stuff you want to do and you can't get it done during a day because of your job or school or whatever, start to work on it and find other people that have a like-mindedness and it'll rise up and become real. I mean, I don't know how it can't, you know? <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, no, we it always find... Your heart. Yeah, we always find a way to make it fit. It just makes me think to like when I was back at uni and it was university by day and theater by night, like you always just find a way to make the creative uh, practice happen. So I definitely agree with what you're saying, Matt, of just find like minded people and it'll rise up and yeah, you'll find a way. Definitely. Definitely. I mean, that's all. If you look back at the stories of people that have, you know, gone and done well in these these realms i'd say at least half or more than half are people that just started with that passion you know they didn't necessarily have a background with a mom and dad or an uncle who were working in the industry that happens too which is great there's nothing wrong with that i mean you want to support young people that want to come in but it's just yeah it's that drive and that insistence that you won't be thwarted it's like the climbers right got to get to the top doesn't matter if there's wind or rocks or fog or can't breathe, you know, just keep, keep taking another step. Yeah. The actors have alluded to that too, which has been really enjoyable every now and then we talk about, you know, the journey of the, their climb versus the rehearsing and the, the hard stuff, you know. And uh, earlier in this interview, you talked about how you yourself 
were into mountaineering? Uh, reading about it, yeah. Reading. Oh, okay. Because I was going to ask, like, have you – I wasn't going to ask if you've climbed Everest because surely if you uh, had, you would have mentioned it by now. No. The funny thing about me is, well, the first thing isn't so funny, but my brother was in the Peace Corps, my oldest brother, Bob, in Nepal. So it was another little thread in our house. And another brother or mom and dad bought the book Annapurna by a French climber, Maurice Herzog. He was the first one to climb an 8,000-meter peak. That's a famous book that inspired a lot of people. But the weird thing in my life is I I was, and still am, a sort of an agoraphobic about heights. Mm. As I tell people, mine isn't most mostly like a cliff face. It's exposure to big okay. open areas. So I can never climb a mountain. Even flying was off, off the books for me till I was in my 50s. But I was just too afraid of the heights. And the, but it turns out flying isn't exposure. You're in a tube and they take you up and put you down in the tube somewhere else. Okay. But yeah. That's the road, stuff like that. That's not for me. Yeah. I can't drive over the Auckland Harbor Bridge, put it that way. It's too, too wow. high. And too, my wife has to take over and then I get back in the driver's seat. So okay. <laughs> I assume you can. Have you been on your mountain? Oh, yeah, it's shaky for me. I take a few Xanax. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> it's it's about as tall as me, about six feet. But of course, when you're standing near the summit, then the actors are up, you know, above it. So mm-hmm. it's kind of cool. You know, we, we love the set. We James Brunskill, another guy who helped out built this great platform. And Tony Nichols and Sam Kinane from Wintech got us into the Wintech workshop for a few days because we needed a big round space. And then out here in Raglan, people would go by on their bikes and see these big, white, rocky, snowy ribs in the yard being created. Yeah, that's all been great. And we like we like the mountain a lot. I mean, if I had $30,000, I would have probably done it on a rollers and had a little more of this and that. But I think audiences will, will appreciate the effort that's gone into creating that. I mean, I'm definitely looking forward to seeing it. And you know Guy Coker, he's he's into it too. He's helping us with, we have a huge backdrop of the Himalayas to go behind the mountain. Okay. In Hazer effects. I'm giving away all the secrets. Um, yeah, yeah, don't give don't give too many spoilers away there, Matt. But yeah, no. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's it's it should be cool. Yeah. There should be, there might even be a Yeti hiding under the mountain that'll that'll pop up later. No, I'm just kidding. I'm completely okay. kidding. We have a Yeti reference, but it's it's in continuity with the times and what was going on because okay. the, uh, Tenzing thought the Yeti was real in 53 pretty much most of the Sherpa and Nepalese and maybe it is who's to say I mean I will say I do like I have done some Yeti research in my time I'm glad you're joking about the Yeti because if that was part of the show then I would have auditioned at a heartbeat <laughs> You probably had the costume in your closet, right? Several um, Yeti. No, but I just feel like that would be such a like addition to the CV. Mm, you know? It would be, yeah. And plus, it would keep you warm in the unheated theater. Yes. You know, which, uh, I now interesting. They they Hillary was on an expedition whose mission was to find the Yeti after the Everest expedition. I, I forget what year it was. And they found like a goat skull and some other pieces of hairy stuff that had been revered in certain homes over there. 
yeah, so it's it's a fascinating part of the the thing we have um, we have tried to bring that in in a small little bit in the play also. Yeah. I mean, I get basically what the main takeaway from this chat is that I just need to see the show. And so I'm gonna I'm, I'm gonna plug it one more time because th- there's not a limit on telling people to book their tickets at themeteor.co.nz to see the Sherpa and the Beekeeper Summit on Everest, uh, running 25th to 29th of May, uh, matinee on the 29th, and then 7:30 the rest. And um, I'm I'm gonna let you go soon, Matt. But I just want to ask. Um, it's I don't know if it's a tricky question. It's a bit cheeky, and I ask it often. Uh, to my guests and it's okay if it's not public information and you can't answer it but it's it's kind of about the future like like are there any firstly do you have any more uh creative projects kind of in the boiler that you can plug and secondly with the Sherpa and the Beekeeper are there any plans to tour or anything like that yeah that's a great great question Santa uh we would love to tour the show so we're you know we're going to see how this run goes and then what we can do with the post run, um, you know, arena to get the, a tour going in New Zealand. The, sh- the show could run, you know, I think effectively throughout the country and possibly overseas. Even. So that's definitely in the offing to investigate that. As far as personal projects, yeah, I have a two I would mention. One is, um, I have a short film science fiction idea called The Last Voyage of the Panglossian, which is about a small spaceship going to the very edge of the universe, the known universe, and, and an investigation into that last wall, like what's behind it. And I have a graphic novel that's finished and available on Amazon called The Last Voyage of the Panglossian, which is on the storyboards for that film. And I had this great idea that you could build the set somewhere in downtown Hamilton, get some people that are invested in the creative idea of watching a set built because it really is one spaceship interior and you could have a window there and mm. people could go by and see this cool thing developing and you know again movie lovers and people who want to get into production maybe children could tour it have a, a green screen behind it so that's one idea and then the other one is to take my novel and, and just begin to to tickle the idea of um a movie a feature length movie out of that so those are two. I have other ones. <laughs> okay. I mean, you, you seem like you've always got something on the go, Matt. Um, yeah, uh, yeah, I'm lucky. It's a tremendous place to live. I mean, New Zealand's a great place to live. The whole world's a great place to live, depending on the people that are around you. But as we know, there's some places that are tricky. Um, I do want to ask you one question, though, Hannah. Who okay. got to the top of Everest first on May 29th, 1953? Oh, Matt. Okay, well, because I grew up in New Zealand and so up until this chat and ahead of this chat and probably posting your play, I only had what was given to me from my New Zealand-centric upbringing. I meant to think that it is Hillary, but I'm, you know, because you've asked this question, Potentially, it was it was Tenzing. Is is well, it actually uh, known, or is it no one knows? So we just say that it was both of them, and that we'll never actually know. Yeah, and I, it's not meant to be a trick, catch you question. Just to clarify, um, you've been a great great host of the show, and I, I don't want to. 
screw that up and have you mad at me right at the end. No, I'm just kidding. But um, the, the idea of who got to the top first is clearly qualified in books now by both climbers. Mm. He said, you know, there's people who say, well, that's not true, what was said in that book, book or actually, you know, they may have said this because of that. So it gets right into that thing where it starts to get into the spin. But yeah, it is known. And um, if you come to the play, we'll definitely explore that because that's a, a pivotal beginning flashpoint that we definitely have mined for the play. So hope everybody can come on, come on up. That's yeah. No, I'm looking forward to that, actually, because it, it wasn't until you asked this question and this play kind of came about that it had ever crossed my mind mm. that mm. anyone would think of who was first. Because, you, you know, growing up, you're like Hillary, and then you get a bit older and you're like, oh, yep, Tenzing. So <laughs> probably both of them, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's an interesting thing to, to, again, to explore. And it has been written about quite a bit. So I've been fortunate as a writer to be able to, to get into that writing on all all the different ways it's looked at and the cultural things that happen from it so yeah look okay. forward to playing it on we're ready to go we're, we're ready to go up. we're geared up <laughs> okay well i'll um i'll see you on the top then matt
that was Mountain Sound by Monsters of Men. Uh, big thanks again to the lovely Matt Cambick for joining me on the show today. It was great uh, to have a yarn and get some insight into the Sherpa and the Beekeeper Summit on Everest, which is running at the Meteor May 25th to 29th with 7.30pm shows and a special matinee at uh, 2pm on the 29th of May, which is the actual day Hillary and Tenting reached the summit of Everest. As Matt said, 11.30am, 29th of May, 1953. Tickets uh, can be found at themeteor.co.nz and are $25 uh, adult and $15 student slash concession. I will be putting the link up to find tickets and more info on this event with the podcast of this episode. So make sure that you like that that's the ticket with Hannah Mooney Facebook page so you can keep up to date with that sort of thing. Uh, might as well move into other upcoming events in Kirikiriroa. Uh, obviously, we've already talked about the Sherpa and the Beekeeper. Uh, Blood Brothers, uh, another one. I had the lovely Eckhard and Patrick on the show in the last episode of TTT. And I actually made it along to opening night of Blood Brothers uh, this weekend that's just been. Uh, mahi Pai to everyone involved, and uh, it was great to see you on stage, Eckhard and Patrick. Blood Brothers is running at Rivoli Theatre until the 28th of May. There are 8pm evening shows and 2pm matinees, uh, with tickets available from $25. Uh, you can grab yours now, I ticket, but you'll want to be quick because they're selling like there's no tomorrow. Uh, looking at other upcoming events, Clarence Street Theatre have Tom Sainsbury Snapchat Dude coming through on June 8th with a one night only 7.30pm show. Hamilton Gardens have just opened their new ancient Egyptian garden and you can go and check that out. Uh, entry into the garden is free and it's open for viewing 10am to 5pm daily. Now I'm going to uh, end the show. End the show with a rather important segment. It's time for Rick's Pick. And for those of you who aren't familiar with Rick's Pick, it's a, a weekly segment I have on That's the Ticket. And basically, I have an Uncle Rick. He's a great uncle, great listener of music, listens to a lot of radio and a lot of music. And when he found out that I was um, getting my radio show, That's the Ticket, he's like, cool, every week I'm going to give you a song and you can play it on the air. Well, he's given me a list. And so every week I just pick a song from the list and every week we have Rick's Pick. And, yeah, I've never missed one, and today is not going to be an exception. So for this week, I'm going to end the show with Rick's pick, Sitting in the Balcony by Eddie Cochran. And then because I've been going with a bit of a theme and playing songs to do with mountains and climbing and such, going to chuck on uh, a bit of The Climb by Miley Cyrus, because how can you not? Thanks for listening, and I'll be back next week. Matiwa. I'm just a sitting in the balcony, just a watching the moon. Or maybe it's a symphony. I wouldn't know. I don't care about the symphony. Those are symbols and the tune. I'm just a sitting in the balcony. Just sitting in the back and on the very last row.
we may stop loving to watch birds burning, but he can't take the place of my <laughs> just a sitting in the back, you know. Just a sitting in the back, you know. On the very last row. Just a hugging and a kissing with my baby in the very last row.
more episodes, use the accessmedia.nz app for iOS and Android devices, or subscribe to this podcast via Spotify, iHeartRadio, or Apple Podcasts. This free FM podcast was brought to you with support from New Zealand On Air.